This is Sandy Clough and Chandro Tar on Mile High Sports. Delighted to be joined by our next guest. You've had a chance to hear him before talking about the Denver Nuggets. The, uh, the Nuggets beat for the Denver Gazette is Vinny Benedetto. You can follow him on Twitter at V Benedetto. Vinny, thanks so much for, for joining us. Uh, like before we get into tonight's game, I-, I wondered if you might be able to take us through what you saw in game three and game four that that led to these games going sort of sideways for the Nuggets, besides, of course, the fact that uh, Devin Booker turned into some sort of supernatural creature out of Harry Potter or something. Yeah, yeah, I think, well, it's got to start with Devin. I mean, the way they just have kind of allowed him to get into rhythm and, and get going early in these games is kind of, put them behind the eight balls like the the defensive intensity on Booker especially was just real late to show up and then you know it got better as the game went along but he's already shooting into a big basket at that point so tonight if I'm the Nuggets I want to see something like the way the Suns are guarding Jamal Murray you know where where they're not letting Booker catch the ball walk it up the court and and just kind of settle in um and part of that you know comes back to the offense whether it's turnovers or or not not great shots that are allowing booker to get in transitions it's like it's just been way too easy for him in the first first half i think of both these games and then in the third quarter when when the intensity is is finally dialed up he's already in a rhythm so i think i think i if i'm a Nuggets fan i just want to see that physicality out of the gate tonight who would you put on him to uh disrupt him or throw him off that rhythm uh, would it be Aaron Gordon or somebody else or some other thing they haven't tried yet? Because they've tried a lot of stuff. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I'd still start with KCP on him and just give him a chance and say, hey, you're you're only out here to make Devin Booker's life hard. If the ball finds you in the corner and you're open for a three, obviously you shoot it. Um, but but if you're not able to, to slow Devin Booker down, then I would I would introduce Bruce Brown into the game maybe even earlier. And, and then at that point, I think you could you could shift Aaron Gordon onto Booker and, and see if Bruce Brown can hold his own against Kevin Durant. It feels like he's done a decent job. Maybe it's more Christian Brown. I, I've heard a lot of the uh, the calls for Peyton Watson, and I don't know if we're quite there yet, especially with the, the series returning home. It seems like that might be – just a bit too desperate for, for the situation right now and, and possibly even, you know, unfair to Peyton um, to put him in that kind of situation and say, Hey, go slow down either, either Booker or Durant, but I'm not, I, I wouldn't be surprised if that's a place we get to, you know, if, if the Suns possibly take this one, then maybe, you know, you got to throw everything at him. But yeah, for, for now, I think I'd still, I'd still start with KCP on him, give him a shot to, to make his impact early, but, but have a, have a relatively short leash with that. You know, if, if Booker gets going again, then maybe you make a, a change three or four minutes in as opposed to six minutes in. So I, I, that would be a pretty aggressive move, but Michael Malone did say that he's, you know, basically nothing's off the table. Anybody could be playing. Uh, we watched Monty Williams do that to great effect, obviously, especially we saw what happened in game four. But uh, not only Monty Williams, but we saw it last night with, with Darvin Ham and Lonnie Walker. We've seen uh, we've seen even the, the Warriors try it, and they got they lost. But uh, it seems as if now coaches are a little more amenable to mixing and matching, even with guys that aren't necessarily a big-time contributor for the most part. 
is that desperation or is that an understanding that maybe with the uh, specialization off the benches that there are different ways to use it as opposed to the traditional, I go with my eight guys and I, I do, that's just what I do every time. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't, you know, I don't know how desperate Darvin Ham was last night in a, uh, you know, with the two, one series leading. They, oh, you know, pretty they, desperate. They don't win that game. They lose the series for sure. I'd say pretty desperate and smart. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I, I think Malone specifically is kind of committed to this eight-man group for right now. Um, you know, I know Reggie Jackson's name got floated. Yep. I, I might be tempted to, you know, this would be maybe a shot too far, but like some sort of traditional five because when Nikola Jokic isn't on the court, the rebounding just seems to disappear. Like Jock Londale getting all these offensive rebounds. Um, seems to be an issue. You know, Jeff Green rebounding is not his strength, but but then your options are DeAndre Jordan or Thomas Bryant. You know, and I I, I guess you know DeAndre gave him some serviceable minutes in the first round. Maybe he can he can do it again. Um, but you know, I think for now it might be maybe more Christian Brown. You know, him just playing eight minutes in that in in Game Four feels a bit low given how. <laughs> yeah, I agree. How, how easily, uh, you know, Book and Durant got got their points in that last one. I think with Phoenix right now, it, the key guy to stop is Booker. But we've been talking about Durant uh, almost as much as a, a defensive rover as uh, an offensive game breaker, and. It seems to me that you've got to make Durant guard. Grant Hill during the game on Sunday was describing in some detail how Durant was basically roving out there as a virtual free safety or center fielder in baseball who basically takes everything in his area and maybe a little bit more. He's also the only shot blocker in this series and, uh, as good as he has been, particularly in the last two games on offense, it's Durant's defense and his ability to play around the basket because he's not really guarding anybody Phoenix respects uh, from the outside. Don't they have to find a way to make Durant work harder somehow on defense and actually have to guard somebody? Oh, yeah, definitely. And, and this is something we've seen at different points. You know, Minnesota kind of did some of it. Um, not guarding Aaron Gordon, I think, is is something the Nuggets have seen throughout the year. And I think the only way to counter that is just to tell Aaron Gordon to be uber-aggressive, uber-physical. Um, you know, if you get an offensive foul, so be it. But, like, make them feel you on the offensive end. Yes. Yes. Uh, you know, I, agree. I, I think that's – I think that's the key. And, you know, in, in games one and two, you know, I think game one, especially Aaron made them pay. He, I think it's just a matter of him taking the right shots. You know, if, if it's a corner three that you catch in good rhythm and it goes up naturally, I think that's the shot you kind of got to Got to have him take at times with, with this defensive strategy. Um, but it's the, when he's, you know, coming off a dribble, kind of looking around, nothing's there, nothing's there. All right, well, I might as well take this three. I don't think that's the best process for right now. Um, but but I think it's got to start with the aggressiveness. If you get an offensive foul for, you know, trucking Kevin Durant on your way to a layup, so be it. 
I, I just think, you know, there's got to be physicality on both ends for the Nuggets, especially with Durant and Booker. We're talking to Vinny Benedetto of the Denver Gazette, and I think that really is a good point. I mean, I, I think that the Nuggets have the ability to do that, and they were doing it in the first couple of games of the series, specifically in game two, and they kind of backed away with it. They've fallen into the trap of getting into the track race with Booker and Durant. Have you gotten the feeling that they understand that that's what they've done and will make those kind of changes coming into tonight? Yeah, I mean, we, we heard this stuff after game three you know, about Booker getting going in transition and just, you know, life being pretty easy for those guys out of the gate. But but game four was much of the same. And, and I don't know what it is. Maybe it's being on the road and, you know, that building was pretty hyped. And, you know, maybe there's part of being on the road where you don't want to play too fast and almost feed into it and, and kind of get out of sorts. But, yeah, there was there was just a level of intensity and, and almost discipline that wasn't there on the road that, that maybe it'll be easier to have at home. Um, but, yeah, that, that's one thing that's certainly got to change. On that point, do you have a sense yet after four games as to whether this series does have that as its most prominent personality trait, as it were? that home court trumps everything. Uh, We're seeing the Nuggets, who've lost two games in a row, go from a a four-and-a-half-point favorite to a six-point favorite, seemingly overnight. Literally overnight. uh, I guess literally, seemingly. uh, It it seems to be the sense of oddsmakers, the betting public, that the home team enjoys an unusually strong advantage in a year where uh, at least lower seeds uh, going into games yesterday, I believe, were 28 and 29, having played seven fewer home games. This seems to work against that, uh, although I guess we could have said the same thing about Golden State and Sacramento, which was a home court series for four games, and then a road team series the last three. I, I don't sense that with this series, and I'm wondering about you, uh, having uh, having been at the games and so on and getting a sense of what's going on, that how comforting is the home court going to be for the Nuggets tonight and possibly in Game 7? Yeah, I think the Nuggets have to be relatively comfortable with, with where things stand. The, the first two games at home you know, were the two biggest margins of victory in this series. Games 3 and 4, the Nuggets had opportunities to win both those games in the final two, three, four minutes, whatever it was. Um, and this series, one thing that's just been blatantly obvious is, is just how the difference in role player bench performance at home. First two games, Nuggets have the advantage in bench points and, and win the minutes. Nicole is not out there. Three and four, you know, then it's, and I, and I think part of this is also the, the rotation switches that Monty Williams made with the, the TJ Warrens and Terrence Rosses and, and going back to Landry Schmidt. Um, I think those, those were certainly played a big, the, the rotation changes played a, a big part in, in the game three and four results, but just the, the performances of Bruce Brown at home, you know, seemed quite a bit stronger than they were in game three and four. Uh, maybe, you know, Jeff Green gets a shot or two more to fall. So yeah, I, I think, I think home court advantage is going to be really important in this series. And, you know, 
not to get in too into officiating, but I'm sure there were situations in Phoenix that Nuggets fans weren't weren't real happy with. Um, that that might flip, you know, with a little home court influence. So yeah, I think I think it's going to be really important in this series. So in, in this particular game, looking at this one, if it's going right for the Nuggets, what will we see by the end of the first quarter? And if it's going wrong for the Nuggets, what will we see by the end of the first quarter? Yeah, I think I think the most important thing in the first quarter tonight is feed Nikola Jokic early. Last game, it was like we got there in the third quarter, even though they were they were largely guarding him one on one throughout the game. Tonight, I think you got to feed him early, and, and if they're going to stay with that that one on one approach, I think he should be able to you know either draw fouls or almost score at will. Um, I think what you don't need to see is the, uh, you know, Jamal Murray trying to win one-on-one against Devin Booker. Um, that that first half of game four, it seemed like he was still trying to um, make this, you know, kind of not necessarily one-on-one thing, but kind of show that, you know, the bubble wasn't a fluke still. The the first round series wasn't a fluke where he, I think he's kind of, he wants to show that, you know, in the, in the two playoff series that he missed, you know, it seems like other guys kind of jumped him on, on the totem pole in terms of, you know, best guards in the NBA, all-star stuff. And it, it felt like at times he was kind of out to, to make a point in that regard. Um, I, I think you got to feed Nicola early tonight. See if you can either, you know, eight, eight shots, be great pick up a foul or two on eight in Orlandale. Um, yeah, I think that'd be huge for the Nuggets just to make sure that he is involved and aggressive early. And, and even if even if they bring a double, then all right, you've kind of figured out the the lay of the land early, and you can maybe then make some tweaks to make sure you've got shooters in the right places, like like Monty Williams did with Landry Schmidt at the end of Game Four. He is Vinny Benedetto of the Denver Gazette. Make sure you give him a follow at V Benedetto on Twitter for all the latest. Uh, appreciate all the insight, Vinny. Obviously, this is going to be a, a pivotal game, uh, maybe not only for the Nuggets in this series, but maybe in Nuggets franchise history. I mean, it's a big time, so appreciate you spending some time and breaking it down with us. Awesome. Appreciate you, guys. All right. Thanks so much, Vinny Benedetto of the Denver Gazette. So put it out with V Benedetto. That's V B E N E D E T T O. The. Points there that were being made, I think, are are interesting because there are. I, I I could tell Sandy that you, of course, agreed with some of those and disagreed with some of those, and and that's where I think this is such an interesting series because when we've looked at it now through four games, each of these four games had distinctly different character to them. Uh, the, the first game, the Nuggets simply just were wildly efficient offensively, could do what they want. Uh, Phoenix looked like they didn't even belong on the floor with them in many ways. The second game, the Nuggets played a, a fantastic defensive game. The third game, not only did, of course, the uh, Phoenix bounce back as you expected, but they didn't get a lot of help from the depth per se, but the Nuggets were just sort of out of sorts and didn't look all that good. And then in the fourth game, of course, Booker went berserk, but at the same time, the Nuggets kind of uh, decided to see if they could match it rather than do anything to counter it. So uh, we haven't really seen any of the, the characters of any of these four games repeat themselves. And I think that's why it's very difficult to start to project what might happen in game five. I just think fundamentally, 
fundamentally, and we were talking about a lot of things, and, and Vinny was addressing a great many subjects there. Fundamentally to me, the Nuggets' weakness during the season continues to be a weakness in the playoffs. And not necessarily in this order, but there are two that come to mind. Coaching rigidity, which we addressed, and how to get Michael Porter involved so that he's scoring more than 12 points a game, which is his average across the first four games of this series. He's shooting below 42%. He's only making 36% of his threes. Um, foul shooting, uh, you know, I he's not getting to the line that much. I don't know that he needs to get to the line uh, a lot more, but he needs to be a factor offensively, and there, there's some push and pull on that. Yes, they have to look for him, Murray in particular. Uh, yes, he has to move without the ball more and get stuff going to the basket, whether it's by cutting or by maneuvering off the dribble, which he has the skills to do but doesn't always apply those skills. Um, the Nuggets did not have a third scorer the other night. They had Jokic right. and they had Murray, uh, who did make more than half his shots. So you go into game four and you say, okay, uh, regardless of the number of shots he takes, Murray's going to make more than half his shots and he's going to play 40-plus minutes, and he's not going to turn the ball over one time. Saying, okay, I'll, I'll like his chances, and by extension, Denver's chances, of winning that game. Uh, Gordon and Porter both have to be offensive factors. Gordon is not a defensive specialist. He's a very good defensive player. He's probably their best defensive player, but he's got to do more on the offensive end and specifically around the basket area. And Porter has to be more of a force, however they go about doing that. And if he's not, get him out of there and play people who at least will defend and can't be much worse than four for 13, which he was from the field on Sunday night. Um, Those are the two things that jump out to me. I agree with feeding Jokic early, but I think overall, given the choice, uh, picking your poison, so to speak, the Suns would rather give Jokic his 50 points, even if he also has 11 assists, if beyond Murray there is virtually no one else involved in the scoring, rather than double-teaming him and allowing him to bring Gordon and Porter, among others, into the game as scoring threats. The strength of the Nuggets is that they have six guys, I would say, six guys who are capable of scoring 15 points. Somewhere between 15 and 20 on any given night. I'm not saying that six guys have to do that tonight. Certainly not every night. But right now, does Contavious Caldwell-Pope seem like a guy who could score 15 points? 
He doesn't to me at the moment. Does Bruce Brown? No. Does Aaron Gordon? No. No, not, not the last two games in Phoenix. Not the last two games in Phoenix. He's been bad on both ends. And again, in my opinion, relative to the standard okay. that he's generally set uh, this year. And he's averaged 9.8 uh, per in the series. So you're, If you're not averaging point 10 points, you're not a factor. There's only I mean, four guys uh, that do. DeAndre Ayton is averaging 10.8. I don't even think he's a factor offensively. He gets 10.8 points because he's got people feeding him who know what they're doing. I, I have to see six Nuggets tonight who are a threat, not actually that they do it, but they're a threat to score 15 points. In Phoenix, during those two games, I was discounting Caldwell Pope, I was discounting Bruce Brown, I was discounting Gordon, and I was discounting Porter. That's four out of the six. That leaves Jokic and Murray. It can't be just Jokic and Murray. Even the Suns can't win with just Durant and Booker although they're, they're closer giving than a the, pretty good shot at it. They will be closer <laughs> at it than the Nuggets will if they try to play the two-man game again tonight. Game five, of course, is tonight. We'll get back to it. But Gabriel Landeskog will be out for the entire next season as well. What does that mean for the Avalanche and for Landeskog? We'll discuss it next on My Life Sports. Sandy Clough and Chandro Tar, presented by Superbook Sports. Download the Superbook app and start winning today at Superbook.com. Here's Sean and Sandy. Unfortunately, the summertime for the Avalanche came sooner than expected, and with it, the news that Gabriel Landeskog will need another surgery, this time a cartilage transplant, which is... Uh, something of a new procedure and something that the returns for uh, modern athletes who have had it are not exactly promising. Let's be completely honest about that. Gabriel Landeskog will be 31 years old this year, and his career, I think, is very, very much in doubt. That is obviously disappointment. For the Colorado Avalanche, however, the clarity in this situation now changes the way that Chris McFarland, the GM, and Joe Sackett will work on on assembling a roster for next year because Landis Scott can be put on long-term injured reserve, meaning his money comes off the cap. The Avalanche still pay it, but it comes off the cap, and the Avs can spend it. This is one of the things that, quite frankly, hamstrung the Avalanche. Had they known at the trade deadline that Gabriel Landeskog would not have been able to play at any point this season. He could have been put on that list, and the Avalanche could have added more talent that may, if it still had them in the playoffs right now. So this is the situation for the Avs, that it is bad to have Landeskog out, but it is good to know that Landeskog is out. Oh, it was the offseason imperative, I, I think, that came um, not to the exclusion of everything else, but before anything else was determined. Up to and including perhaps the fate of one Valeri Shushkin. I think you had to make the determination on where you stood with Landeskog and what he was going to do. Surgery inevitable, but it's the kind of surgery that will uh, make uh, a return next year 
uh, virtually impossible. Um, that's the declaration at this point, and hopefully uh, he can salvage uh, a career. Uh, he may never be quite uh, as dynamic a player as he was, uh, but he could still be a helpful player. Uh, you're exactly right about the, the cartilage transplant, as it were, uh, mixed success, relatively new. It's, I think, as much of a lifestyle decision for Gabriel Landeskog to have this surgery and have a chance at uh, living his type of active lifestyle again at some point, uh, whether that means he'll continue as a hockey player. Uh, I think you're right, very much up in the air. And that's obviously a, a challenge. And and it's almost now you're looking at it in parallel paths. You know, there's Landeskog's story and there's the avalanche story and now they in some ways are disconnected landis gog is going to have the surgery and he will uh, heal on the time frame in which he heals we know it will be at least uh another calendar year here until we know anything else and then the avalanche can adjust and adapt then but to a certain extent now these are no longer stories as strange as it sounds with the captain of the avalanche that are really sort of intertwined anymore landis gog will now for he- next year no. right they will he will heal on his own pace and they'll just see what happens when that occurs. Now the Avalanche have to look to filling that hole and figuring out what to do, not only, as you pointed out, with uh, with that money for Landis Gog, but what they're going to do with Larry Nachushkin. Of course, that is still very much a, uh, a an open question because there's still a, so much that we don't know, and the Avalanche at the stage simply don't appear to be interested in addressing it in any but way, shape, or form. there is more that we do know. In the sense that the 911 call has now been made public, Seattle Times published uh, the exchange uh, between the uh, 911 operator and apparently the Avalanche's lead physician, who described the woman in question as uh, being in considerable distress, either as a result of being drunk or having been slipped something. But again, which sounds ominous. She didn't slip. But it was herself. also a. It was also a supposition. A Mickey. It was also a supposition made by the made lead. By, yes, physician. But a supposition, but not he, by just any. Old I understand person. that, but he also said it could be either, either or. Not, I know, not saying, but he introduced the possibility. Well, I think when you're calling the calling the the help, you have to say like, "Hey, it might be this. It might be this." I, I would know. I would disagree that that is typical. It is not, uh, and the fact that the physician, the avalanche physician suggested even the possibility that something may have been slipped to her may not connect all the dots, but it gives us a sense of why Valery Nishushkin is obviously in trouble and why the initial reaction that you get from hockey people to um, the idea that, well, maybe they'll just look to trade him straight across from someone making a similar salary, I said, well, why would any team do that? The supposition being not only do the Avalanche know exactly what went on here and what didn't go on, but so do 31 other teams in the National Hockey League, and there's no way, based on what they seem to know, which is a hell of a lot more than we know, that hockey people consider it a possibility that you could even dump this guy on anyone 
Well, they I, know we don't. They know exactly what happened or pretty close to exactly what happened. And the alarming thing about the 911 call is who is on the other end. And it's an avalanche team position. And he is saying this isn't just a woman we found stumbling around his room drunk. There's the possibility that she was drugged. Just to suggest that as a possibility, this is the avalanche person. This isn't a person operating necessarily with her interests uppermost in mind. He's operating as an avalanche employee, presumably with Valeri Nachushkin's interests in mind. And you snap your finger, fast forward one hour, he's not only out of the hotel room, he's out of the hotel. He's not only out of the hotel, he's out of the city. Never to be heard from since. Even his agent doesn't say anything. There, there's all the incentive in the world for any one of a number of parties to say, nothing to see here. And no one said that. No one said that. And I, I think it's a, a, an embarrassing situation for the Avalanche. I think it did impact them in the playoffs. I think it took some good people and forced them basically either to say nothing or, frankly, to lie. And that's unfortunate. Well, that people had to lie uh, about, for for example, Jared Bednar, but that's only, who I but greatly that's admire, lie. You don't have to lie, though. That's the on the reason. Okay. I, I agree it's on the avalanche. But why would you lie and say, that he missed practice because of maintenance, which was certainly plausible. He's been dealing with with injuries. Why say that unless the truth is so much? Well, but but here's, so but here's much the problem worse. with that, though. And here I I get it. And you know, hockey obviously that's joke of a the way they you know injuries upper body lower body or whatever is is. Well, I'm not. Tar- be, I'm not. Is used to being cloak that. and dagger. No, no, but but I, but I am. And and my my point is that okay, whatever happened in the Chuston's room, we we don't know. But the Avalanche are compounding it. Let, let's say let's say the worst is the case, right? Let's say, but hypothetically, and it is worth noting that that wasn't said or anything. But hypothetically, let's say the worst is the uh, worst case you can imagine. This case, if you're the Avalanche, why not just then come out with it, point out he was a bad guy that he he did something bad and where we're going to either discipline or move away from it. Why not just say it? Because now at a certain point, Sandy, if well, something, if they're trying to trade it, them, if something really it. happened, that's really bad. And it is, it is worth noting that nobody is even being investigated for a crime. Nobody, according to the police department, nobody. But if it was really something that bad, as you're suggesting, Sandy, then at a certain point, the avalanche become complicit in it by covering it up. And that's where things start getting right. complicated. I I agree with that. I agree with and that. And that's where I, I'm not I, saying I, I agree with the decision the, the to cover Avs, it up. The Avs need to start I think coming it, clean. it made some good people look very bad. And I'm sorry, uh, either Joe Sackick or Chris McFarlane has to speak to this. And I, I didn't hear the Zoom call today on Landeskog, but I'm guessing that not a soul asked the participants 
obviously not Landeskog. He, he wouldn't have those, those anything to say about to... it. But Chris McFarlane should have been asked about it and was not. And that's a fault with the media, too. So the Avalanche are complicit. The media is complicit, at least uh, Well, when you understand that respects. the Avalanche weren't going to say anything, they're not going to say anything now. You've still got to ask the question. I'm sorry. E- even if you know they're not going to say anything, you have to get them on the record saying, we aren't going to say anything. And I'm sorry if it's if he's just an innocent bystander. They say that. This is something that's so much worse than hiding an injury that they dare not speak of it. The problem is, okay, you can keep us in the dark, but every other team in the league has enough intelligence out there to have figured out by now what's going on. There are other agents. There are other management people. Word gets around. There are other players. The truth is known. The NHL is very good at hiding this stuff. I don't know that the NHL needs to be involved in explaining it, but the avalanche do. And the fact that they're not even asked about it is negligence on the part of the media, and I credit those who have spoken out on this. And, uh, you know, I don't always agree with Mark Kislip, but the column he wrote during the playoffs about how this was being handled was spot on, absolutely spot on. And it, my disappointment comes from the fact that it put people who had nothing to do with this in the position of not only not saying anything, but having to lie about the reason he missed practice at the very least. And then to say, well, we've been in contact with it. If you're not going to say anything, don't say anything. <laughs> if, if you're determined not to say anything, don't say, say, well, we've had contact with him. Well, what form did that contact take? Was it contact in the form of we are now seeking to void your contract? Was that the nature of the contract? Or we are seeking to work out some kind of trade. You'll hear from us when we have something more to tell you. Who initiated the contact? I assume it was the avalanche if they're talking about it. So it, 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 you're right. It, it's, it's cloak and dagger, but in a more insidious form. And I think it hovers over this franchise. I think it you does can too. deal with Landeskog. It's an injury. It happens. It, it, it happens. It's unfortunate that he'll have to miss a second straight season. But this cast a pall over the playoffs while the Avalanche were involved, and it continues to hover over the team and it's a lot more important than doing uh, a new contract for an unrestricted free agent like Rodriguez uh, or Coffer uh, or doing a bridge deal with a restricted free agent such as Bo Byram or maybe even Alex Newhook. It does. It's, it, my, it's, it's, it's the only issue that matters right now. The, right to to it, of the, the only thing I can say that's the, the relatively that we've seen recently is when John Morant, of course, had his issue with flashing a, a weapon while at a – at a club in in Glendale, and they tried to keep that quiet. But guess what happened? They're like, you know what? He did something wrong, and he's going to rehab. Okay. Mm-hmm. Well, if that's what the Jews can say, okay, just say that. Right. And just even say that. even John Morant, who may or may not still have quite a bit of growing up to do, said after the playoffs, 
I hurt our team with all the nonsense I put the organization through. Why would Nishushian's situation be any different? The only difference is that Shushun won't talk about it. The Avalanche won't talk about it. And in Memphis, for all their flaws as an organization, John Morant talked about his situation, and Memphis was very open about uh, keeping him away from the team for reasons that were obvious. And when he got straight, he could come back. There was no injury, no phantom injury involved. Uh, He needed to get help, and he may need more. We can bring him back. But as we saw in the playoffs, uh, there were other culprits in Memphis losing that were perhaps uh, uh, more complicit in their losing than John Morant. But John Morant was not the John Morant we've come to know even after he came back. Well, we will find out what the Avalanche do in the offseason, but I, I do think you're right. We may not see it the same way, but until this, this situation with the Jushkin becomes more clear and, and, the, and the people responsible for that now are the Avalanche. And until the Avalanche become transparent on that, that they are, they are stuck in this sort of uh, creation that was not originally of their making, but now it is. And they're going to have to figure out a way out of it uh, sooner the better in this offseason. And obviously losing Landeskog for the season doesn't make it any easier. The Denver Nuggets need to get a win tonight on the home court. What do we think will happen? We'll tell you next on Mile High Sports. This is Sandy Clough and Chandro Tar on Mile High Sports. The Denver Nuggets will take on the Phoenix Suns in Game Five tonight at Apollo Arena. Uh, this is a, in my mind, Sandy, an absolute must-win. 8 p.m. tip on TNT. For Denver, not for Phoenix. Correct. I, I, and that's the thing. I, I get it. It's two to two. I get that the Nuggets have home court, and the two of the three will be in Denver. At the same time, I can't envision the Nuggets winning this series if they lose tonight. It's just that. Oh, simple I for can't me. either. I, I, I think that the home court is critical. And then if you lose three in a row, uh, and the wheels come off. You know, uh, it, 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 if you want to look back on this, and I, I, I'm just throwing this out. I, I, I like the Nuggets tonight. And if there is a Game 7, I, I would like them in Game 7. Uh, I wouldn't like them as much in Game 6, win or lose tonight. But to kind of feed into maybe your slightly more pessimistic outlook, um, Game 2 is not a work of art. Uh, in fact, the Nuggets were quite bad offensively. They weren't as bad as Phoenix was, but they were quite bad offensively. Now, um, maybe it was 60-40 between good defense and bad offense. Maybe it was good defense. 60% of it was good defense. Uh, if it was 60-40, okay, that, that would be about my limit. <laughs> I wouldn't go any <laughs> higher because at least 40% of it was bad offense, to, to my way of thinking, in that game. And that was on the Nuggets side, too. Uh that game was 59-51 Phoenix in the third quarter. There was no way the Nuggets were going to score 100 points. 
they'd have to win by scoring in the 90s somewhere and holding Phoenix to less. Right, right. Than that. And that's that's going to be tough right now. These are two efficient offenses, and they are playing a very efficient but basketball. In, in, in that game, Chris Paul went out with an injury when it was 59-55. Right. Um, I thought at that moment it was probably more of a Chris Paul kind of game. And at yeah, least slow, for game grinded out three, type of stuff. I thought Phoenix would play faster in part because they'd be playing at home, but in part also because Chris Paul would not be playing in the game and they'd have to play faster than they would with a now 38-year-old point guard. That's that's the funny part is, and we did address it yesterday. We're not we're not hiding the elephant in the room here and certainly mean no disrespect for uh, one-day first ballot Hall of Famer Chris Paul, but the truth is that Right now, today, today, May 9th, 2023, the Phoenix Suns are a more dangerous team with Chris Paul off the court than on it. Absolutely. I, I And I think that does apply tonight, too. Now, He's not going to play tonight. It didn't apply in game two. I, I think, you know, when you have an injury like that to, to a, you know, your orchestrator, your lead assist guy who has still got, what about a four to one, even a better than four to one assisted turnover ratio in the kind of game that was played in that grinded out type of mess? Yeah. Um, eight days ago, his loss in the midst of the game didn't leave Monty Williams, who seemed confused anyway, with much to turn to. Cameron Payne came in and he was dreadful. He went one for seven. He did most everything wrong. He wasn't a factor defensively. And although he wasn't a major factor in the two games in Phoenix, his speed helped them. They moved faster. He played a little better than he had, which was awful in in game two, but his speed was more of a factor. In that kind of game, when they lost Chris Paul, they were up Mm 59-55 at that particular point. Mm -hmm. It was the kind of game that I thought it, it, it was more likely that Chris Paul could help them win it than he'd be a culprit in their losing. In game yeah. two, yes. In game two, Correct. specifically. The thing that's intriguing about tonight is Phoenix at home was better without Chris Paul. Yes. Will they be better here without Chris Paul if this game somehow is very different from three of the first four games mm-hmm. and both teams are shooting right around 50% and the scores up in the one teens or one twenties, at least for the winning side. Yeah. And, and obviously that will be, uh, we'll find out a little bit about that in the early going to be sure, but you know, keep in mind in, in this particular, in this game, it, it's just going to be fascinating uh, to be Sandy because, like as I mentioned before, there's just none of these games have had a similar character. All of them no, have been different. They've all been at and least I suspect a this little one will bit too. different. And what I think yeah. will happen, and I I get it. I mean, yes, I'm I tend to be pessimistic because that way I'm less often disappointed. Yes, but <laughs> the uh, the the truth of that is, I do think that the Nuggets lost a five point game in which we know that there was a blown or should have been a call that would have made it kind of a one-point game. I mean, the, the last the last game four was close, and it could have been even closer. 
And the Nuggets got nothing from their bench whatsoever and barely got anything from any starter that wasn't named Jokic or Murray. I have to imagine at least some of those players will be better. And while Jokic was extraordinary, the funny thing is, he wasn't all that far off what he normally does. He only had four rebounds. He'll be better than that. The, the assists were not out of whack. It was a, a lot of points, but but I, I just no, don't look at... No, you pointed that out when somebody suggested after the game the other night that um, they took you out of your game. No, silly. And that, that was the wrong way right. to put it. They, they picked their poison, and the fact of the matter is, in games in the playoffs in which Jokic has scored 40 or more points, the Nuggets are 0-3. But it wasn't like they erased him in... Uh, every other aspect of the game. I thought Jokic in that game was better than average. Not outlandishly better than average, better than average. I thought Jamal Murray was better than average. But again, not out of control better than average. No. And that they got nothing from their help. Now, Kevin Durant, I think, was also better than average, but not out of control. Uh, Devin Booker was out of control. Can you do that again? I don't know. But you know what? Landry Shaman almost never plays. Bet she doesn't get 19 tonight. Uh, I think that with Land with Landale, there's probably some uh, diminishing returns the more minutes he's on the court. So I think that you've kind of seen the best there. It just seems to me, I'm a big believer in averages. They're there for a reason. The Nuggets, almost it's almost impossible for them to have all of their guys besides Jokic and Murray to be that bad again. And it seems pretty unlikely that everybody who played over their heads for the Suns is going to do it again. The one guy to keep an eye on who I think had a bad game that can play better is DeAndre Ayton. But to my mind, I don't know if that's as much of a difference maker. So I, I think the Nuggets get this yeah. done tonight, but I expect to sweat it out. And again, it's been two years plus since they've been in this particular playoff situation, although they're in the playoffs every year now. 2-2, fifth game at home, having lost the previous two games. In fact, this particular breakout is unlike anything the Nuggets have experienced in the playoffs. In, in the series they've won, They've either come from way behind to win or they've lost an early home game. They they weren't up 2-0 on San Antonio or Portland in 2019. Uh, they, uh, they were 2-2 with Portland going into a fifth game at home in 2021, but I believe they lost one of those home games there too. Well, I guarantee you we will be talking about it tomorrow. Nuggets Suns tonight at Game 5. Thanks to Vinny Benedetto from the Denver Gazette for joining us. Thanks to Danny Bailey in the booth making it sound good. Spencer Patterson in there on the video side of it, too. So thanks to everybody who caught us on Mile High Sports or the free Mile High Sports app. Time for us to give way to folks that have to drive. So Neil Apiro and Cody Rourke. I'm sure with more about this big Nuggets matchup. For Santa Clef, I'm Sean Drotar. Thank you for listening. We'll catch you back tomorrow, but keep it right here on Mile High Sports. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.